Welcome to What is Wellness? I am your host, Kristen O'Connor. I have been a private chef for the past 10 years, following clients around to help them achieve optimal wellness for themselves through food, from the deserts of Morocco all the way to a random boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and pretty much everywhere in between. Now I'm on this quest to speak with really interesting people in this space, whether it's acupuncturists, naturopaths, environmentalists, doctors, and even individuals who have experienced their own incredible journeys to optimal wellness, to really dig my heels in and find out what actually is wellness. Welcome, please subscribe, comment, and pass this along. I can't wait to share all these stories with you. Today, I am thrilled to introduce you to Frank Vogt, who is a New York State licensed board certified acupuncturist and herbalist. He also combines craniosacral therapy, qigong, healing, and classic Chinese herbology. He's a Reiki master and meditation teacher in New York City. Frank is incredibly passionate about healing and has worked in the space for quite a long time. He shares not only his knowledge, but his incredible insight and intuition about the healing process. Welcome, Frank. Thank you so much for coming on What is Wellness today. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So before we get into kind of the more, um, you know, detailed aspects of acupuncture, can you give everybody kind of an overview of what acupuncture is and how it works as a mechanism for healing? I think so. I hope so. I mean, <laughs> uh, I remember when, when patients used to come to see me at the beginning of my practice. And so I was barely like 30 years old and I looked very young and they would nervously ask me like, how, you know, how does acupuncture work? And I'd be like, I don't know. And then they'd be like, well, how long have you been practicing? And I'd always say, oh, this is my first week. <laughs> Just to disarm them, you know, cause I could tell there's a sense of nervousness, but you know, 15 years later, I wouldn't say that my, my understanding of acupuncture intellectually has changed, but empirically it's changed. It lives in my body in a different way. So in terms of Anything that's you get that's you know 2,500, 3,500 years old, there's going to be some competing stories about how it began or where it came from. So I don't pretend to know with authority this is exactly how acupuncture started or where it came from or how it works. I will say on, from a Chinese medicine perspective, it's part of traditional Chinese medicine. And in the ancient kingdoms of China, all the emperors had their personal doctors who performed acupuncture. There's associations with acupuncture to Taoism, ancient Taoist, who meditated on the body, who understood the energetics of the body. And then in, in some way, there was a slow evolution of mapping out the energetics of the body. And that's what became the acupuncture channels and the points on those channels. Um, all of the points on the channel, and there are over maybe 700 or, 800 main, 700 or 800 main points, all of those points on the body affect different organs or are affected by different organs. And so you can manipulate the chi, which is like the energy, the life force in the body. It's a bad translation, but it's the best we've got. And you can move that energy by um, manipulating the points. The acupuncture needle is is it's just a tool. It's like a hammer for a carpenter. You don't need a needle to influence the chi. You're influencing your own chi when you meditate. When somebody bumps into you, you're affecting the chi. Uh, 
the needle is just a, a really smart tool to be very specific with how we want to influence the chi of the body because it's very it's like a little meditation in the body and that meditation lives and breathes and so we can adjust uh, the influence on the body in very specific ways but i always feel for the patient it's they're like little meditations little deaths almost and that you're laying on the table it's like a sword it pierces but it's like homeopathic in the sense that it's a miniature version of death it's a miniature trauma in the body and that miniature trauma allows for healing of a greater trauma so once we start to um, affect the body's energy, then we can start to heal things. And we figure out where the energy is flowing, where it's not flowing. So from a biomedical perspective, there are some translations of that. There's no one exact theory. But basically, at all of those acupuncture points, there are also areas where there's a lot of communication between a lot of different systems. And so when you needle, you're causing an immune response, and that immune response activates the body at those communication centers, which helps the body communicate with itself. Once the body communicates with itself, it knows how to heal itself. And so you're activating the body's own healing capacity. Also, if you took like an MRI of the brain, when you needled certain areas, it would correspond to activity in the brain. So not at exactly the, the area you're needling. So if I needle in right. the knee but it's on the liver channel, let's say, the area in the brain that corresponds to the liver might have more activity than the knee. So we know that there is an intelligence of the body and all this has to do with fascia, connective tissue, nerves. There's so much more to the body um, in the structure of it and in the communication that has to do with the immune system, that has to do with energy levels, that has to do with vitality overall. Uh, that's way more subtle than just a hormone or an organ or things like that. That's incredibly fascinating. It actually reminds me of the Rumi quote. I think he says the the wound is where the light enters. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, and so as you were describing, um, you know, the needle and talking about it as a trauma to the body, you know, it's really interesting because I think thinking about healing from that perspective is really powerful because we kind of don't really see it that way. And it's much more concrete in a way. Yeah. And the idea of sort of discovering healing through like creating a wound on purpose to let the light through is really fascinating. But, you know, having actually worked with you for a really long time, there's so many tools or, you know, mechanisms that you use outside of the needle as a healer. And I'm just interested in hearing about your journey to how you've become the healer that you are today and the different ways that you treat your patients. Hmm. Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, I have certain trainings. I'm a Reiki master. Um, I practice Qigong. I, I practice cranial sacral therapy and I have training in, in different forms of cranial sacral therapy. And I meditate every day and have internal medicine practices that are based on uh, authentic spiritual scriptures from the East generally. And so all of those things influence me and they kind of overlap sometimes. Uh, it's hard for me to always know exactly which one I'm using because there's, and, and I'm not saying that they aren't distinct things. I'm not saying they're all one or all the same thing. It's just that the parts and pieces I've used of all of those things kind of overlap for me. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, when I'm 
trying to manipulate the energy more, that feels more like a Qigong practice. When I'm trying to just stay open and allow, that feels more like biodynamic cranial sacral therapy, which is how I like to begin my sessions, which is a lot about just like listening and unwinding and having as little efferent activity as possible, not trying to influence or have a major intention other than to hold space and let the body communicate with me and tell me what's going on. So sometimes that listening is, is very open-ended and very unstructured. And it's just like, I'm just sitting in space. And sometimes uh, when it feels right, that listening is very structured. And I'm actually charting the acupuncture channels point by point, hundreds of them, and testing each of them and feeling how they relate to each other and, and just the overall composition of each point. Does it feel heavy? Does it feel damp? Does it feel tight? Does it feel loose? Is it cold? Is it hot? Is it weak? Is it strong? And then sometimes I'm even getting more creative things like, is there an emotion there? Is there a color to it? Is there a memory there? Is there an intuition about this patient that comes up in that point? So, you know, there's no exact remedy or method for that, but it, it arises. And in fact, sometimes when I try to get some intuition or some, you know, memory, whether it's this life or a past life, when I try, it doesn't really work that way for me. So it just comes on its own nature and I just remain open to it. I wonder sometimes if people come in saying, you know, oh, Frank, you know, my lower back's hurting me. And, you know, I, you know, I kind of like, like with a, with a specific agenda. And then you sit down and you're really listening to what their body's saying. And perhaps it's not a back issue at all. Perhaps it's something else. Um, and I assume that that's kind of what you learn through that practice and through kind of starting that way. And then how do you transition? Like, how do you then address what comes next? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. The ancient Taoists, um, they would be regarded as effective healers, not by how many sick people they healed, but by how many of their patients never got sick in the first place. So it is like a, a daily living, right? And um, I, I just had a patient today who came in for a specific reason. You know, I had seen her before, but she came in for a very specific reason this time, the health issue. And then later on in the session, she had mentioned that it's interesting that I feel like I'm here for so many more reasons. And we didn't even talk about that issue today. And it's not that it wasn't on my mind, it was. But I know that by her not mentioning it, that that's already a success. Like we're already evolving into a bigger, more holistic sense of her body, her health, her emotions, her mind, and her overall well-being as a, as a soul, as a spirit. So I, it's the, sometimes the problems or the traumas or the symptoms give us a motivation. They give us a motivation to start the healing process. And then right. from that, if we take it in the right way, it evolves and it gets to something bigger, more open, more spacious. And sometimes I love when patients forget about the reason they came in in the first place, or I love when they say, oh yeah, that's, that's much better. Actually, those are generally the healing experiences that are natural and evolutionary versus someone who comes in and like, oh, you're awesome. You cured my back pain in the week that happens. And then often maybe something else comes up for them two weeks later and then something right. else, you know? So I almost love when it's like a slow mesmerizing uh, walk out of uh, a serious or, or an aggravated medical issue. And those type of healing generally last longer or they seem to be uh, more important for the person's long-term health. 
I, I was talking to a friend just last weekend and she was just before her cycle and we were started talking about how the female body is, and, you know, of course this is, a, you know, different things happen with the, with the male body, but with the female body, our, our cycle in particular will give us so much information about where we're at emotionally. And, you know, she was going through an extreme stress in, in her life and, you know, she ended up being really early. And I said, you know, this is most likely an indication of that because it's interesting to think about our physical ailments being kind of like a warning flag, just signaling to us that we need to address things. And maybe that we need to kind of actually zero in on ourselves, especially when our lives are very kind of opposite of that. You know, we go so fast paced through our day, through our life that I think there's a massive loss of mindfulness, you know, where you can go the whole day sometimes and not feel your feet on the ground. Mm. And what's interesting about your practice in particular, and, you know, I can speak from personal experience is that I think many times I've almost given up on going in with this very specific kind of thing. I tell you all the time, but because trusting that process too, and sort of leaning into it is a way of just opening up your mind, body and spirit and saying, okay, let's connect the dots here. But you have had some interesting learning experiences too. You know, I remember you telling me about going to South America and visiting the Kogi tribe. What was that experience like, like, and how does that apply to your practice today? Well, I practice one traditional practice, which is acupuncture, right? Or traditional Chinese medicine. But the Chinese in particular were just very good at note-taking. They also had a, a, a massive nation. So a lot of the tradition survived pretty well. And it, there's all empirical, the Chinese wrote a lot of things down and they had a, a massive civilization so that we have access to that ancient wisdom, right? In, in other cultures and other places of the world, sometimes smaller, sometimes more remote, we don't have that luxury. We don't have 3,000 years of written down things to go through. And sometimes that's on purpose. Sometimes there are um, ancient sacred traditions that only wanted to pass down their wisdom word of mouth, right? And they didn't want everything written down so it couldn't be misunderstood or manipulated. Um, so I've journeyed around the world to study some of the more remote traditions of the world uh, whether it's healing or spirituality. And yeah, they've had a huge impact on me. And one of them was the Kogi journey, which is, uh, so the Kogi tribe are in the Northeast of uh, Colombia in the Sierra Nevada mountains. They really were untouched by any civilization up to the 1990s. Even when the conquistadors came uh, five, 600 years ago, um, they initially had access to them. And then the Kogis were threatened by the conquistadors uh, and so with the slave trade and such, and so they went up to the top of the Sierra Nevada, difficult to get to, uh, a dangerous jungle in some regards, and and were left there untouched. And even the as populations grew in the 20th century, were left pretty much alone, in part because of the drug trade and such of Colombia. It left that area sort of d dangerous and remote to get to. But in the 1990s, the Kogi sought out uh, a vehicle to communicate with the world because they saw that their mountain was changing. The Kogi view their mountain as the mother, as the sacred 
home of the earth, really, and that they are the keepers of that. So they call themselves the elder brothers and sisters and the rest of the world, the younger brothers and sisters. And they make these sacred, uh, in Spanish, it, it translates to pagamentos. They have their own language, the Kogi, obviously. But those pagamentos are offerings. They're offerings to the earth and they do them at sacred sites, kind of like acupuncture points. Uh, and they'll, they'll put in beads, needles, um, I mean, not needles, but beads, stones, crystals, things that are of value to them and uh, that are valued of the earth. And they'll place them in these sacred spaces to keep the earth harmonious. But they believe that because of some of the damage that's been done to the earth, mostly through drilling, uh, drilling of minerals and obviously of oil, and of the stealing of sacred objects from the Kogi and other sacred tribes, they feel like the, the earth is angry, that Mother Nature is angry at that, and that some of the climate change and weather pattern changes that we've seen over the last few hundred years especially are due to those events. And so they have a warning. They had a warning, and they first talked to the BBC in 1991. Robert Herrera was the reporter, and he, he made this beautiful documentary film about the Kogi. I think it's called From the Heart of the World. And uh, it's so wonderful. It's, it's fabulous. And, and it's, they gave him access to stay with them and be with him. And so 25 years later, I was given access thanks to a very good friend of mine, uh, Anna Maria Velasco, who had uh, previously trained with Kogi herself. And she's a yogi. And uh, so she had built a trust with them. And then so we took a little film crew down there with uh, my friend, Tad Fedig and my brother-in-law, Tom Maroney. And we filmed with the Kogi and we stayed with him for a few weeks and it was really amazing. We slept in the jungle with him and their wisdom is just so sublime. And so their healing practice is very much about like, we I would translate it as like the karma of things. That's not what they call it, but it's like they have a mamo, the equivalent of a shaman, but the mamo heals by really looking at the core reason why an affliction is there in the first place, why a disease is there or with the earth, why a problem is there. And it's always behavioral. So they look to a behavior and say, okay, the behavior was awry with this. Here's how you're seeing it. They believe that every thought injures or creates a new world, right? So it's really working at the level of thought to create healing. We, we learned that that's a very difficult thing to film. <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Film but, yeah. And, and, and the, you know, pretty much it becomes pretty clear that the mamo is effective when he can read the person's thoughts. It's not just what they're saying to you. So yeah, that was an extraordinary experience to spend time with them and they communicate with other worlds and uh, we're walking in the jungle and they look at a rock and they see the, the like markings on a rock and that to them is a library. It's a book of the universe and they can read it and translate it. I was, we were walking in the jungle with an older Mamo. Maybe he was 70 years old or late 60s. And he was barefoot and he was walking behind us and we were walking slower to make sure we didn't get too far away from him. And then it, it dawned on me finally that I was like, oh, I really shouldn't be walking in front of him. He should be walking in front of us. So I allowed him to walk ahead. And as soon as he got ahead of us, he flew like he was like a jaguar and he was so fast and we had a hard time keeping up with him. And oh, he no. was like flying on rocks and stuff. So they def definitely have a different physical way of relating to the earth. And the reason they wear bare feet is because they don't want any separation of connection between themselves and the mother, which right. is the earth. Wow, that had to be incredibly powerful. It really was, yeah. And the idea that they're getting to the root of 
what's going on and, and where the illness is coming from and starting with the more, I guess, spiritual side of illness. Does that come into play with meditation and, you know, an approach to how we can heal ourselves and work on healing ourselves and even be preventative in our own approach to healing? You know, is that, is that something that comes into play? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I, I think that every other remedy is just short term, really. They're important because sometimes we need short term remedies to gain momentum and to feel better and to be have more clarity. So that's why treating the body is really important. Uh, when a patient comes in, I also want to I want to give them physical ease because without that, it's very difficult to see clearly and to have peace of mind. But once you have that peace of mind, once you 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 have some brevity, you have a little respite from discomfort or disease then you can start to look at the true causes of things and where things actually arise from. And it's, it's always in our worldview. It's always in how we hold the world and how we hold our experiences. And that doesn't mean everything is our fault. The opposite in a way, it just means that there's a freedom in, in releasing. There's a freedom in letting go so that we're not holding on to things in one specific way that's causing us harm or somebody else harm. And so you become your thoughts in a sense that you become the, the way you hold the world becomes the world that you end up experiencing, right? So the way that I hold my experience will affect how I am held by the world. And we, it's always, but the problem is it's not always sequential. And so we don't understand things because they're not sequential. So I treat you really nice and you bite my finger and I'm like, why the fuck did you do that? I was really nice to you. And there's no comprehension. So it's like things seem random and then we don't understand and we feel victimized by the world. When in truth, in some time before I injured someone else, right? The dose might not have been the same. The doses can be very different, right? In some small way or larger way, I affected somebody else in a way that forced me to experience you in a way that caused me pain. And so I'm always trying to understand. I might not remember in, in, in some spiritual traditions, they think of it as a past life probability. So it's not that you always know what caused it, but when you realize that it starts and begins with you, it gives you a freedom. It gives you an opening. Um, the other part of that is with karma, and that's really what we're talking about, right. is that you never use karma as a weapon. So if you're going through a hard time, I'm never like, oh, that's your fucking karma right? Because that's a misunderstanding of karma. That's not how it works because any pain that you're in is part of my pain, right? And that's my karma to see you that way because I don't know for sure how you experience your world on the inside. I only know what I see. And so if I see someone in pain, if, you know, somebody in my life is suffering, that's part of my karma. That's not theirs. It's all, I bring it all back to me. Or if there are children in the world who are starving or in war-torn areas, that's part of my karma that I live in a world like that. So I'm the one who has to take responsibility for it, not in a guilt way or in a heavy way, but in a way where, okay, I'm going to create the alternative to that, the opposite of that. I'm going to create peace. So if there's a problem I'm seeing in my world that comes up for me, I need to bring the opposite into my world. So if I'm feeling that I'm being ignored by people, then I need to really listen to others. And if I make the connection between that experience and the result, which I'm seeking, it works even faster. 
It's like my mind is on it and that the karmic wheel starts spinning faster and faster. Um, but like, you know, it's like I said before, it's not always sequential. So it's, you can only really see it in meditation. I think that's, that's where we, we, we gain the actuality of it. And you can test it out for yourself. You know, somebody else's version of that might be completely different than mine. I don't hold absolute truth on that. It's just the way I'm working with it. Yeah. So when you're thinking about that and you think about the things that we can do in our day to day, the question becomes, you know, how much control do we really have of our own selves, our own healing and our own environment in how, so if meditation is a key to sort of access our spiritual side and ability to tap into ourselves, but then how does that really translate into our physical lives and help us to sort of, and I don't mean get the things we want out of life in a material sense, but get the things we want out of life in a, in a spiritual and emotional and health perspective because ultimately you know the, i guess the trick is if if it doesn't always exist in this world or in this lifetime what's the point arguably <laughs> and and i i feel there is a point i'm i'm just being you know no, i'm saying you know and 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 are there ways that it will impact in in our own lives and in in day to day when we are doing these when we are working on daily meditations and when we are considering the impacts of karma? Well, all I can say is that, yeah, if you, if you don't have a roof over your head, meditation is not going to be very advisable, you know, like right. if your body's in constant pain and aching or, or your loneliness is, is, is so strong or you're, you're fighting with your mother, you know, whatever it is that's, that's aching your heart, there that is your spirituality as far as i'm concerned that is that's where you start you have to meet your life with what's in front of you your desire to be successful or to make money or to have a great sex life whatever it is all of those things are important because they're part of you and they can be sacred everything can be sacred i think the caveat to it is am i using it to help more than just myself because when it's just self-focused it, eventually it runs out Eventually, we become disassociated from our world, and then it's hard for us to be happy in that way. The happiest people I've known are people who, in some ways, see the happiness of you as just as important as the happiness of me. Mm -hmm. um, so I think as long as it's we-centered and not I-centered, then all of these things are important. Making money, good relationships, certainly a healthy body and safety, all of these things that we want in our lives winning in sports, having fun, you know, having a beautiful backyard. All of these things are important and sacred and the same principles apply to building it. Um, it's just that sometimes the, like everything else, the results are fleeting. So they come and go, but based on the way we cultivate our inner being, it becomes easier to manifest things. Right. Um, it's sort of an overused word in some ways. Like it's a very poppy word, like, Oh, I'm going to manifest this or manifest that. And, and, and I always have a, my own personal nature is to always cringe at that a little bit, but I mean, it's true. It's important. I mean, those things are important to me. I can't have a good life without those things. So um, I think it's something I'm learning, honestly, I, I don't have the ultimate answer on that, but I know energy creates material 
first. And so whatever I want to create on the material realm, I just have to look at the energetic realm first. And it's also about authenticity. Like how am I showing up in my life? Like how fully, how honestly, and how engaged am I in my life? Because you can't create anything good for yourself when your energy is fractured. You have to be a whole, you have to be dynamic. And that includes being balanced with both yin and yang, both moon and the sun, both internal and external. And when we have those balance points, the things we create are not just good for us, but they're good for others. Yeah. It reminds me of that, um, you know, the Buddhist philosophy that we are all part, like, you know, our bodies don't start and stop with our physical, like our skin, you know, and that actually in meditation, I think you've taught me this too, but in meditation, you sort of, what, what an interesting kind of thought process is to really understand that we're all one and that connectedness can be really powerful. And I think there was a study that was talking about a group of people in a small town who started meditating and how that impacted the overall town in terms of crime and, and how powerful it can be. And that that's kind of goes back to the community sort of aspect of what you're talking about, that this isn't just individual. This is really has to do with understanding that we're, and and in a way it's, it's really wonderful because if we are just these singular physical beings just sort of operating around like that's incredibly lonely right yeah but if we can realize that our even our mental space is part of a greater whole and that we can through our own spiritual practice we can positively impact other people and thus the world that's really powerful in itself yeah I, but it's I but, but i think you're right in terms of it's kind of like, um, you know, the basic, basic needs mentality where, you know, you look at our availability emotionally and spiritually, and you do have to have your basic needs met in order to get there, you know, in order to get to that place authentically. But through your practice over the years, have there been any really transformative stories that have stuck with you that you've experienced with patients, obviously, you know, names aside, but that have been kind of these incredible transformations based on intervention and how someone has actually like really embraced the practice. Hmm. Um, Today, the first story that comes to my mind is actually my father um, because it was such a a strong healing experience. And and I was only one part of the whole network, which is I think the best type of healing, right? But he had, my, so my dad had a heart attack. He went into cardiac arrest on uh, probably about 2013. Uh, we were at a family event, this large family event that my uh, greater family is a part of. And he fell on the street. Luckily, my brother and my uh, sister-in-law were right there uh, with him. And she's a nurse. He's a fireman. So they performed CPR on him for a half hour, I think, before the ambulance got there and kept him, you know, alive, basically. Um, They brought him to the hospital and, you know, we beat him there to the hospital. But when he came in, he still had no heartbeat. Uh, So they they zapped him a few times and got it back. I remember a custodian walked out of the room and kind of gave us a thumbs up. And (laughs) we knew that it was like our little angel. We knew that he had been awakened. 
But because of the trauma of losing oxygen for that long, it's best, you know, their feeling was best to immediately induce uh, hypothermia and, and a coma. So they put him in a, a really cold state for a few weeks and just monitored him. Um, when he started to come out of the coma, well, he didn't really start to come out, I guess, right away. That's, and they were worried about that. Uh, we couldn't, like, so once they warmed his body up, uh, he was still out cold and, and pretty much non-responsive. Uh, and at some point, and, and the doctors did a great job with him to, to save his life at that point. I mean, and the medical care um, was, was fantastic. But at some point, they weren't seeing the progress. But I, I was there every day, and I was doing acupuncture on him. And I was doing energy work. I dialed in a couple of my friend healers to also do some work from a distance and get their reads on it. And so I was very much every day, I'm going to work on him. I'm going to help him. And the physicians at the time felt they were trying to prepare us that it was, he was not going to come back, that we were starting to think about pulling the plug. And the reason is, you know, that they've seen this before. Even if he does come back, he probably will be vegetable. And so they had these sort of stories. And I was like, look, I'm not afraid of death. If it's his time, it's his time but I'm seeing a different story because I'm looking at him and really they were coming in and looking at machines and numbers. And I was looking at subtle bodies and energetics. And I, I saw that things were changing every day, even if he wasn't conscious yet. And sure enough, he would be, and so the doctor was like, all right, all right, I, I hear you. And they just let us have some space. But I think they were thinking like, it's just going to be a matter of days and then we'll accept it. But he did come out. He came out of the coma and first he wasn't sure. He thought it was 1984. And he was talking to me like we were in the house that we were in in 1984. Wow. Yeah. So he's, he, it, but it took about in a few weeks, his consciousness came all the way back. I remember my uncle was there and said, Bob, uh, put your arm up. And my dad did nothing. And then like literally like 10 minutes later, his arm like slowly went up. Wow. Like it took 10 minutes to process that. Right. Um, so he, my dad has a really strong will, you know, like his, is health patterns out of uh, health, you know, choices haven't always been great, but he's such a strong constitution and will. And so I just activated that and tried to bring his consciousness back into his body. Um, and then he came and within 30 days, he was like hundred percent back to himself, just a little weak. And the doctors were floored by it. They were absolutely, they, they did. I don't know how often they've seen that. Uh, so he walked out of the hospital you know, with, after a little bit of physical therapy with on, on his two feet and was pretty much back to himself and has been for almost 10 years now. So um, that, you know, that's a very strong story, but it's experiences like that, especially when it's your family that give you a sense of, oh, like we can, there's a lot that can be done with this medicine. He wouldn't be there without my brother, you know, and his wife, and he wouldn't have been there without the medical care. So it's not something I'm giving myself credit for, but I know the acupuncture helped him. I mean, um, it sounds like tremendously. I mean, I got chills just thinking about it because yeah. yeah, in, in other situations, maybe he would have gotten that far without it, but not, not farther, not be able to actually walk out of the hospital. And I, I would say besides my efforts, it was also just the fact that we have a really big family and they were always there and loving him, sending him energy and I, I, I saw that helped him too. I felt that helping him. And yeah, when people don't have that, it's, it's like, that's such a big part of healing, the support and love that you have from those around you. It is. Also, you know, you said something about your dad's will, you know, that he 
you know, he has that kind of internal structure within him. And I think a lot about the willingness to show up for your own healing and how powerful that is because even, and it's interesting because I think about it a little bit, and this is a bit different, but I think about it from the food perspective too, right? I'm a chef. And so I always ask people if I'm coaching them, what's your starting point? And, you know, we go through strategies that can help them get achieve their body goals or health goals, whatever it is they're trying to achieve. And it's very, very interesting to me because it has much more to do with their willingness and their openness and their belief in their own ability to show up and their belief in what I'm offering them. I've obviously been interested in acupuncture and Chinese medicine and everything that, you know, you do as a healer for a very long time. And I, but I believe in it with my whole being. And I'm just wondering how much you feel like that does influence healing, especially in this type of way. Obviously we know that, that there's something that has to do with that in, in medicine also when people talk about the placebo effect, right? So there's a huge connection between the mind and the body and accepting healing. But do you see that a lot in your practice in terms of people's really like emotional, spiritual availability and healing? Yes, but I would say it, it can be in the mind in terms of thoughts, but it's often in the mind in a more unconscious way, mm-hmm. uh, so much so that it exists with dogs or babies, right? Like, it, you know, like, it's not like, I would say, yeah, do you have to believe in the healing? Yes, but not always from like the frontal lobe, like not always. Not, a, not always on a conscious level. Yeah, because a baby doesn't decide if he believes in acupuncture or not, <laughs> or a dog, but it works or it doesn't work based on the skill of the practitioner. But, and I would say an openness. So maybe that's the way to phrase it. It's, it's not it's belief, it, yes, but even in openness, there's a, there's a, a place for it that can fit in. So the, the patient has a space for the healer. And I think when that space is available, you can work in it and play in it in a really powerful way. Yeah. Is there anything that you know as an acupuncturist about health and wellness and healing that you think people that are walking around without your experience and knowledge are aware of? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. Like I, 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 I'm always, I'm a very, you know, I make mistakes all the time and, and I'm goofy and so I, I don't hold myself as, as, you know, in any sort of special way. But uh, just paying attention to the the wisdom of these masters and, and how it runs through me, um, there are certain intuitive things I feel sometimes about ways of living. And, and then there are basic sort of truths about things that are passed down from ancient lineages in, for instance, within Chinese medicine that have to do with balance, that have to do with, and I I think in the United States, especially in America, we're not very good at at finding balance uh, or or it's not something seen as important. In fact, we kind of like the extremes. And and I get that, I grew up here, I know know what that's like, but it's like, we like things really hot or really cold, you know, put more ice in my drink now, (laughs) you know, or like, I'm gonna heat my house to 76 degrees all the time or 80 degrees, whatever. and so we're we're gonna work really hard, right? And like gas ourselves to the bone, 
or like we're going to do nothing and veg out and kind of space and, and put no effort into ourselves. And so we live in this very like bipolar way, uh, very binary way where it's like off or on completely. And we're also disconnected. It's funny. One of the ancient texts within Chinese medicine uh, is, is very much um, sort of Bible, of, if you will, of Chinese medicine. And one of the very first questions is the emperor is talking to his healer and he's like, why do people uh, of today get sick more than people of the past? So take it, this is already a thousands of years old book. Right. right? Um, and the answer is, well, because people of the past were more in tune with the seasons. When it was dark, they went to bed. When it was winter, they, you know, they were more quiet. When it was summer, they were more active. So I think the more often we can pay attention to what the earth is doing, not just in like, oh, my star sign says this for this month, but in really basic human ways, like what's the weather out today and how's that going to inform my behavior? Right. right? Uh, we pretend that we lived in, in separate from it, but all you have to do is have arthritis that gets worse with certain <laughs> weather conditions, right? And you know how affected we are by, so if, if, if the moisture in the air can, can change or shift our day, you know, also shift our thoughts, and I think that when it gets more mystical, I think it can work the other way around too. So I think the physical environment that we live in is affected by the people and how they think and how they live and how they hold things. And that shifts and changes the environment, the weather. Um, and then it creates the very structure of the life we live in. There are certain areas of the planet that are much different now than they were when different civilizations lived on them. And it's not just because of pesticides or, or you know, uh, suburban home explosions. It's also in the thoughts of the people. It's also in the, the carry, the energy that people carry, whether it's trauma or whether it's um, belief or faith on a more positive level. These things change the environment that's around us and it creates a new physical reality. Um, and that to me gives me hope. And when you meditate and when you listen to the seasons and you listen to the earth and the elements, you can begin to feel that happening at very subtle levels. I mean, you can even feel, and you know, this is just like a small thing, but you can feel the difference in the energy in different cities or towns. You know, you, you can feel something like a vibration that is different and people describe it in all different ways. They don't necessarily say that, you know, the pulse of the city or whatever it is, but there is a different feeling that, people know inherently from a different place. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I, I find that a fascinating, fascinating connection because I think people don't necessarily, necessarily really think about it that way that, which makes sense, but that can then have an effect back to the planet and to the seasons and everything that's going on around us. When a plane lands somewhere new that you're going, instead of like the first thing we're doing is like, when am I going to get out of this plane? How long is it going to take me to get out of this plane? How long are we going to taxi? Is it, why is this person getting their luggage in front of me? Instead of our mind kind of focusing on those things, we could just sit down in the, in the seat and just think, what is the energy like in this new place I'm in? You know, what does it feel like? What does my heart feel like right here? How's my breathing? which is part about my own story, but then we, you begin to feel things that are about the environment. And the quieter we can get ourselves, the more we feel the environment. And so uh, whether it's a new country, a city, or your neighbor's house, 
when you put yourself in a new environment, if you're quiet and you listen, you can feel the energetic changes and the shifts. And then using that as a guide intuitively, you can begin to be more useful or, or be more in line or harmonious with what's around you, if that's what you want to be. I, I think that makes sense with even just your day to day. I mean, and even just being a human being walking around, you know, we, I don't think that a lot of people, me, myself included, take the time to really be still, you know, there's this urgency, there's rush. There's also, I think a fear of, of a quiet mind and what that brings up. And so a lot of people are hyper-stimulated and, you know, don't really take the time to sit back and say, you know, I'm here right now. What am I feeling? What am I sensing? And then how do I react to that or, or become one with it, you know, really embrace it and lean into it. I think 75%, I'm just throwing that number out there playfully. <laughs> I think 75% of the world's problems would be erased if we spent the first minute of connection with every person we come across in silence. In time, in time. It's because it would, we would start to feel things and pay attention to things outside of what our minds are screaming at us, right? Outside of habit, outside of momentum. And that's when we begin to be really present. And when we are really present, we can hear and see other people. Yeah. I, ha I actually had an experience like that very recently. And I think it enables you to also, you know, the, the idea of listening to your gut, which really is just being quiet and giving the space for the reality in front of you to exist. Mm. Right. And it's rare that you can do that with somebody else, you know, that you can sit in silence and just look at each other and feel an understanding and let it be what it is and trust that. Yeah. Cause sometimes you can't, I mean, sometimes people aren't ready for that and you have to hold silence in a more subtle way. Perhaps I remember in bless her heart, my grandmother was a definite spiritual inspiration for me. But I wouldn't say she would sit with you in silence, you know. So I remember I decided one day, I was like 20, that I was going to just sit at the table and rather than just chat about mundane things, I was just going to sit with her and not say anything and just be <laughs> present. And like, and that night, like she, get, you know, gave a call to my mom and was like, what's wrong with Frankie? <laughs> she was like deeply depressed or something. <laughs> I, I get it. You know, like it's sometimes that's very uncomfortable for people, especially um you know, sometimes people come, can come from households or cultures where like the gift of gab is really important. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you have to do the opposite of that. Sometimes it makes people more comfortable to talk. And I've learned yeah. that because that's mm -hmm. not my habit. Um, you know, when people come into my healing office, this is, so to speak, a healing domain, right? And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna dictate the flow sometimes. I'm willing, I'm open to change, but sometimes that means I'm gonna try to encourage people to sit in their own silence, but you can't do that in everyday life. People are, they don't want that from you. Yeah. So I have to learn and I've had to, had to learn how to engage people in the way that they need to be engaged rather than what I think they need. Mm, interesting. As we wrap up here, I ask everybody this question at the end, but Frank vote from your experience in your life and your very unique perspective, what is wellness to you? Yeah, it's a very deep question. What does it mean to be well? You know, is, is it the absence of disease? Or is it the presence of happiness or joy? Um, 
I think it's probably different people have different goals for what that means. But for me, I would say that wellness is a sense of detachment from things. And I don't mean detachment, not present. I don't mean detachment, not involved or not wanting or not having desire or not, not being excited or being heartbroken, any of that, but um, not being confused, not being rattled by things. I think that is the very beginning and essence of wellness because immediately when we, when we can be in a state of detachment, we aren't pulled asunder by things all the time and we get to live our best life. We get to live our destiny. Um, the, the mind just goes, it's the wheel of fortune, right? The mind goes and turns and turns and turns and most of it is fictitious. Most of it is a projection, maybe all of it. And so if our essence of our spirit follows the mind all the time and it says, oh, that's me, that's my thought, that's my experience, that's my interpretation, that's who I am, I'm just like this, and the mind follows that all of the time, it's going to be a bumpy ride. And I think fulfilling your deepest desires and being the person you really want to be in this life is impossible from that point of view. So I'd like to be the type of person who I can sit within myself and feel content and feel whole and feel all of myself and mostly feel peace, feel a sense of peace, regardless of what's happening on the external. And then I can meet. And so I can meet a heartbreak or I can meet anger or I can meet sadness with that sense of peace and contentment. So I'm not trying to push it away or keep it away from myself, but I just want to meet it. I want to juxtapose the pain with the peace and the contentment. And if I have both of that, it means that I'm whole and I'm complete. Um, and then sooner or later, I think the peace wins it out and the weather changes the emotions change, the circumstances change. Am I the bubble or am I the sea, right? The bubble sits on the sea. And if I'm the bubble, everything's fleeting and, and like, this is good. It's, if it's a bad thing, it's suffering because I don't want it. If it's a good thing, I'm suffering because it's going to run out. It's mm -hmm. going to change, right? Yeah. And so I try to like tranquilize and, and recognize that my happiness is already within me. It's already here. And so wellness to me means I recognize that. I sit within that and it is at the very center of my being rather than on the periphery or not there at all. When I was a long, long time ago, I just came up with these very basic rules that I would follow that would make me happier than not, if I can remember them. I think number one was that I wouldn't compare myself to anyone else, right? Or anything else. And the reason for that is like, you don't know all the circumstances behind things. Everyone grows and does things at certain rates. You don't know if someone's full experience. And comparing yourself to someone cheapens your own path in a way. Number two is I'm not going to live inside of time. Like if I'm going to judge myself, it won't be because of time. It won't be because I'm this age and I should have done this or how fast I'm learning something or how fast I'm doing something. I want, because the, the most beautiful experiences in this world are timeless. So why would I try to fit something into time to have a beautiful experience? It doesn't work that way. I have to get outside of time to have a beautiful experience. Um, I'm really gonna pull my, pull something out of my ass here for the third one to see if I can remember it. But I, I think the, the third thing I did was that 
I wouldn't judge. That's what it was. I wouldn't judge. So it sounds really simple, but like it on a practical level, it means like, yeah, I can make discernments and I can choose my path. I can choose to be with this person or that person, this job or that job. I can choose to say this thing or not say it. But just because that's my discernment and that's this is where I want to go or this is what I want to experience doesn't mean I'm going to hold any beliefs about anybody else at the same time. And that includes somebody's health. That includes somebody getting on the table and one person has this miraculous recovery. I'm not going to judge that. Even though, even though I'm happy for them and I want it, I'm not going to judge it. Somebody else comes on the table and they're in pain and it's been three sessions, five sessions, seven sessions, and they're still in pain. I'm not going to judge that either. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed for me, there was a, two huge things. And I'm sorry if I'm going on and on. No, I love it. Two huge things that were big catalysts for change in my healing practice. Number one is I learned that I had to be detached. I had to let go. What I realized was the more I liked a patient, the more I became attached and the more I got in the way of healing. And by like, I just mean that like, I really wanted them to be well. And so in order to step back from that process, I had to be like, however they are is how it's supposed to be for me. Maybe not for them, but for me, that's how I'm supposed to experience it. And I can only work from that place of acceptance. Coming to it from that place of acceptance, I found that healing was more radical. Changes happen faster, but it had to come from a place of neutrality first. I couldn't lean into it, the experience. What I want to heal, and sometimes I wanted to heal someone because I like the person. Sometimes I want to heal someone because I want to prove myself, right? The ego gets involved. Like, oh, I want to show this person that maybe they doubt acupuncture, or maybe they're a successful big person in the world, and I want to really prove myself to them. Eh, That immediately blocks the healing. So I had to learn to detach from that. And it's still a process. I'm not saying it never comes up, but I'm better. And then the other big catalyst for healing was that I have to have fun doing it or it's not going to shift anything. So any path to wellness, I think, has to be joyous in some way. It doesn't mean I can't also be hard or disciplined, but it has to be joyous. Because one day I was working out in the gym and I felt I was listening to like you know, Rolling Stones or something. And I felt like if I was Mick Jagger in that moment and I was in the middle of a stadium, I could hold the audience in the palm of my hand, right? It's probably wrong, but that's what I felt, right? And so I was like, why can I feel that ridiculous confidence? But, and by the way, it's, I would have to have his voice. (laughs) (laughs) But why can I feel that ridiculous? Yeah, I just, whatever I would do with my body, I would hold them in. Right. But I felt like, why, why can I feel that, but go into my office and not feel super confident that I can heal somebody or that I'm super good at what I did? And I was like, the difference is in the music. It's the fact I'm listening to music when I'm working out and that music gets me out of my head and that music gets me in my body and it gives me a sense of joy. And then when I feel that rhythm and that joy, it's all possible. I can do anything. Like I, yeah, I'd be surprised if I wouldn't heal you, right? right. Or I'd be surprised if a healing didn't occur while I was present with you is a better way to say it. Right. So then that made a huge shift in my practice because I started then having more fun and bringing more joy and stop being so goddamn earnest about healing all the time, right? <laughs> like, because it's a serious thing. People are in pain. I get it. Yeah. But if you carry that earnestness or that seriousness with you all the time, for me, it, it cuts that path out. It's like, I have to be free. I have to be creative in my healing. Yeah. 
And so every session that comes in, I also see it like art. I want to heal people like an artist heals. And I, I, it has to be inspirational. It has to be coming from a place. And when you combine that with some like old wisdom, some lineage wisdom, practical wisdom of a medicine, that to me is the best combination for healing. So I would say my path to wellness has been about those things. It sounds like a lot of surrendering, you know, really surrendering. And with that comes peace, which is, feels like such an important lesson that I want to absorb into my own life because, you know, we try to hold on tight to so many things. And there was a meditation that I think you taught me a long time ago where there was an imagery of, you know, you're sitting in your, in your meditation and your thoughts are sort of drifting up and there's a train going by and they just go onto this train. Right. And they, and they get put off to a safe place that you don't have to, you know, focus on. And that, that type of surrender is sort of like the flow of the ocean too, right? You know, you're, you're kind of riding the wave, you're going with the flow and you're letting the thoughts come and go as they will, just like everything else in life and not trying to hold on tight to something. And with that, just even thinking about that feels incredibly peaceful. And I can't think of anything you know, a better definition of wellness than that. So I don't, I don't remember giving you that, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I just imagined it. That's very possible. <laughs> Sometimes things come through me and I don't remember like, you know, things people say that I told them, I have no memory of that, yeah, you know, but yeah. I'll remember, I'll remember details about their health and their life and their relationships and their history. Yeah. I can't remember things I tell them. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Frank. This has been not just informative, but really enlightening. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, I think what you're doing is magical. It's wonderful. And um, eating and food and nutrition, all of these things are, are so vital and so important. It's probably the thing people need to go to first when they want to change their health. So you doing that and then talking about it and connecting it to all this healing and wellness, I think is awesome. Thank you all so much for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe, comment, and share if you don't mind. Really means a lot to me. Our next guest is Poppy Jamie, who wrote Happy Not Perfect. Cannot wait for you guys to hear what she has to share. Thanks so much. Have an amazing day.